Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Police found 27 corpses. Australia's worst serial killer. You know, I didn't want to get in the car. I actually... With Amanda Howland and Robert McKnight. Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Whether you're listening to the audio version or watching the brand new video podcast, which you can watch at mwm.uscreen.io. And the uh, one and only Serial Killer Whisperer is with us. Hello, Amanda Howard. Hello, Robert McKnight. Uh, every week we get a new banner behind <laughs> us and everything. And we don't have as much blood this week, but I'm... I'm I think I want more blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, the backgrounds are an evolving thing, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> now, uh, I want, there's a few things I want to talk to you about before we get into our um, psychological profile and the news. But one, the profile, Mark Philpot. This is interesting, Amanda, because this is a father who wanted to be a hero and risked the lives of his children, and they died. Yeah, and this is um, a one that twists and turns. We've got so many different places yeah. that we need to go with this one without going to the massive Jeremy Kyle section and all of that. But, um, yeah, Mick Philpot is just one of those people that it's just, mm, it had to be done. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting case. Now, I will say, if you want to do yourself a favour, some of the audio, there are secret recordings done by the police. They are not the best quality. They are audible you can hear them but if you really want to know what he and his wife are saying i would really recommend this episode you spending the five bucks and watching the video podcast we've subtitled everything spent a lot of time doing it actually and it will make the experience of this psychological profile a little bit better we don't usually like to do that but there are cases we've been wanting to do that need subtitles and this video podcast is allowing us to do that we will be upfront and honest most of of our podcasts, Amanda, can just be the audio experience. This one, I'm really going to suggest you try out the video podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you and I had a hell of a time trying to get all of those words out and mm. trying to find transcripts and everything. And so we are the only people that have the official transcript of what is said in these tapes. So it's definitely mm. worth seeing what they're saying, seeing that it's very hard to hear sometimes. Yeah, especially with that accent. Now, also, Amanda, the museum is back. Tell me what you're doing this time. 
So, yes, Memento Mori Museum is about to go on the road. So our first stop is going to be on June 19th at Parramatta Jail. So um, I can't wait to do that. I've got a whole stack of, of new things I've, I've scouted from around the world that will be there. Um, and then we, we have a Geelong date coming up in July and we also have a Queensland date coming up in November. But first one's first is June 19th at Parramatta Jail. Yeah, look, we're looking at some pictures from the one held at Fairfield, which I actually went to. It was a great day. We actually did a live episode of Monsters Who Murder. There's, There's me. <laughs> in the stocks. Uh, in the stocks, yes, that's what you call them. There's me in the stocks. You seem to enjoy that moment just a bit too much, Amanda. Yeah, there is a photo of, of me sort of choking you at the same time whilst you're in it, but I left that photo out. I thought, I thought the one of just you by yourself was, was enough sort of in indication of a relationship sometimes. Yeah, well, I wondered. I thought there was one with both of us, and uh, but I sort of blacked out, uh, you know, <laughs> with your choking. Hey, look, this is really something to go to. It's on June 19 at the Parramatta Jail. Tickets are just $30. Uh, they're available to buy at Sticky Tickets or contact Amanda directly via the public MWM Facebook group. It's seriously a great day. I had so much fun when we did it last time, Amanda. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And I'm glad that after 18 months, we're actually getting it back out and on the road. So most nights when I'm not writing um, podcast notes, I'm actually writing notes for museums and trying to outbid people on, on extraordinary items just to get them into the museum. And <laughs> we have a couple more life-size serial killers this time, and they're going to be set up in quite an unusual way that are going to be a great photo opportunity too. So. And what I will say, without wanting to spruik this too much, is that there are photos you do not find on the internet you actually get to see photos of cases that you don't see anywhere else. This is a collection from a true fan of true crime, the serial killer whisperer. You will not find any better. I really recommend going. But we've got a lot to cover here, Amanda, so let's look at the news items this week in the world of true crime. And it's the case that made headlines around the world, but now there is a new development in the JonBenet Ramsey case. Just this past week, Radar has learned a new potential suspect has been identified by investigators and now a race to conduct high-tech DNA tests is underway to determine if the long-stored cold case can finally be solved. The DNA sample and a full report on the potential suspect, who is linked to a Ramsey neighbour, was handed over to local authorities in Flint who are planning to pass that onto the local FBI office. John Bonet Ramsey was a child beauty queen, of course, who was killed at the age of six in her family home in Boulder, Colorado. Amanda, we are doing an episode, a mini episode on this case where you want Judge Rob to pass his verdict, this could throw things into disarray. Ah, uh, yeah, it seems to happen every so often. I'll, I'll have a big case I've been working on and then something like this happens, but it's fantastic that this could be a breakthrough. I'm not quite sure um, if it's going to sort of pan out. I, there's a lot of doubters out there, but there was also a lot of doubters out there when the Zodiac um, cipher was was deciphered. So, I mean, this could definitely be that, that final moment that it, it just takes away all of the, the guesses and supposition and actually puts us into a place where there 
could be charges laid. The fact that the person's been linked to the case via a neighbour is um, that's a better thought process than going rather than saying it's some guy in, in Germany who looked mm. at a girl wrong and might be um, might be Madeleine McCann's uh, abducted too. So this seems to have a little bit more weight. There's a lot of photos out there of press um, taking photos of, of the police getting these bits of information that they're now going to go and, and chase. But, I mean, we have a full season. It's about seven episodes that we're going to do on this. So this may be like the final tagline. We might actually have to do this as a cold case and we might at the end, Judge Rob might guess right and then next day we find out that, you know, Judge Rob is right again. So Well, Judge Rob is always right. Those verdicts you can... People should just be convicted on what Judge Rob says. When that gavel comes down, you know, those people should just go to jail. Um, look... <laughs> The brother has long been a suspect. Tell me about him because he's been a suspect, but I, and he was named, wasn't he, as the killer in one of the specials, which he then turned around and sued for defamation. What was the result of that? Uh, that that was a very confusing and 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 quite nasty case that happened. It, it essentially comes down to that some people believe that at the end of the 911 call uh, that there was actually more words spoken that uh, is is captured. I believe it's not, but that's just my theory, and I don't want to taint Judge Rob. But um, they believe <laughs> that uh, Pat, Patsy Ramsey actually said, "What have you done?" and was referring to to the brother Burke. So. Um, <laughs> He he sued them and won um, because it was defamation. There's actually even been footage that you can still find online of, I think it was Cyril Wetch, one of the greatest forensic psychologists, actually did tests of a similar age child beating a dummy to see if they had the strength to do the injuries that were caused to John Bonet's head. So um, it's something that has wow. cropped up a couple of times, but there is so many suspects in, in this case. And this new person, as far as I'm aware, have, has never been linked to it so this is a totally new suspect so um the burke one um we are going to, to to talk about burke in the season that that we have prepared but i think there are so many other suspects that we can look at as well um and a couple of clues that um have sent me down some some rabbit holes that are just absolutely fascinating so we will mm. save that for the episode no i'm looking forward to that this is a case <laughs> i'm aware of i'm not really across the details and but we will bring that to you in a future edition of Monsters Who Murder. Meantime, let's move on with the news because a New Jersey serial killer known as the Torso Killer admitted he kidnapped and raped two teenage girls and murdered them in a hotel room a few days later, closing the mystery of a cold case deaths from 1974. Richard Cottingham, who is currently in state prison on a life sentence for other murders, has claimed he was responsible for up to 100 murders. Authorities in New York and New Jersey have linked him to 11 so far, including the two 1974 murders, although they believe the death toll is higher. This is the moment he admitted his crimes in court. Mr. Bruno, you, you retracted any not guilty plea and entered a guilty plea, correct? That's correct, Your Honor, to two counts of murder. All right. And now I'm sure you told your client I have to ask him some questions. That's correct. I've already, sworn, I've already sworn him in. Mr. Cunningham, would you tell me your age? 74. Five-page plea form. You see that there, Mr. Cottingham, right? Yes. Those are your initials, RC, in the bottom right-hand corner of every page? Yes. Mr. Cottingham, you're the one who decided to plead guilty, not Mr. Bruno, right? Yes, sir. Okay. 
And you did commit the offenses you were pleading guilty to today? Yes. Okay. And you understand what the charges mean, correct? Correct. I tell you what, Amanda, it's very different when you see those scenes play out as opposed to a courtroom drama <laughs> on the television. But I've never heard about the torso killer. Tell me a little bit more about him. Well, he was actually caught in about 1979. Um, he had just uh, killed and dismembered one of his more recent victims and had set the fire to the hotel room when... Um, you know, police were caught on fire, were there, and they were actually able to arrest him. But he's actually, um, these, these two will actually make it eight murders that he's actually been convicted of. Right. But um, there are rumours that it could be 85, 100 victims. He could be someone who, who outstrips Samuel Little for that, you know, world's worst serial killer title. Because and why do they think that? Um, because most of his victims were sex workers and, as we know, sex workers are not sort of um, tracked as well as other types of victims are. Mm. So there is a lot of cold cases. There are lots of um, women who have disappeared or been killed in similar circumstances that they may be victims of Cottingham. But, you know, this has been a lot of work to get to this point. I know one of the criminologists that, that worked on this case and um, to see his oh. elation the other day when it got to this moment, it's just amazing to see. It's about 15, 20 years at least of hard work of trying to get um, Cottingham to this point. And, it, and it's worked. This may open the floodgates. As you said, he's in his 70s. So um, there could be more convictions to come if because these two that they've um, found are actually linked to 11 others. So there is, you know, that that could be 13 um, convictions instead of the two that they've just got. And the fact that he's um, pleading guilty says that he's reached that point where he's lived his life and now maybe he's willing to let the truth come out. Well, he's been in prison since 81, so he, he really doesn't know uh, much different these days, so he'd be incredibly institutionalised. So mm. I think um, it is now about the, that, that conscience time that maybe he does want to um, give up these victims so then families can actually have that... Um, I hate the word closure, but the, the, that closure that they can have so then they can continue with their lives knowing that... Their, their loved ones have passed. I mean, I think the hardest part is not knowing. Um, so to be able to actually link cases, it's just, I'm just so glad that they don't give up, that there's always people out there searching and we are finding mm. so many answers to so many of these cold cases. It's just, it's just so rewarding to see. Maybe he found God, Amanda. <laughs> I know oh. you often joke about they do, but maybe he did this time and he's actually coming out and making well, uh, his... Yeah. He probably thinks that he's about to meet him, so he probably needs to get, get good with God. Maybe. All right. Let's move on because a 14-year-old boy has been charged with murdering a 13-year-old Florida cheerleader. Her body was found in bushland less than 12 hours after she was reported missing. Aidan Fucci has been charged with killing Tristan Bailey, but there's outrage after the boy took a selfie in the back of a cop car, which he then posted on Snapchat with the caption, Hey guys, has anybody seen Tristan lately? News 6 has details of what happened in court. 
the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so I hope you God. With his hand raised high, 14-year-old Aiden Fucci faced a judge in Volusia County today for the murder of his classmate, 13-year-old Tristan Bailey, found dead in St. John's County Sunday night hours after her parents reported her missing. Her body found 0.3 miles from the young man's house, according to a new arrest report released today. Also today, the medical examiner confirming she was stabbed and had trauma to her head. Fucci looking up with tears in his eyes as the judge read his charge this morning. Mr. Fucci, you're charged with... Uh with second-degree murder. His parents, both in the virtual courtroom. His mother, also seemingly upset. The tears here different than what deputies confirm is Fucci, seen in this Snapchat, now widely shared, showing the teen without handcuffs holding up a peace sign with the caption, quote, hey guys, has anybody seen Tristan lately? It's now part of the three-day-old investigation, which an arrest report read a search warrant found clothes with blood on them in Fucci's bedroom. This, while the 13-year-old's family has asked for privacy, and the tight-knit St. John's community grieves the young girl's death. Justice is being served. However, we know the, the, the community is angry. This is a very tight-knit community. Oh, Amanda, I've got to ask you, is this kid a psychopath, or is he just too young to fully understand what he was doing? Um, I don't think he's either, but until we actually get a motive for why he's done this, um, we sort of can't sort of pass that, that, those judgments just yet. I mean, being 14, uh, they do know right from wrong. They know death from life. Um, so he knows that what he's done... Um, he, he, he shouldn't have done but we need to know why he's done it was this um an attempted sex act gone wrong was this a, an act of revenge was this just a boy who wanted to get those thrills of being a psychopath and 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 stabbing someone we we really don't have enough information yet to sort of start to sort of give an analysis of, of what this boy is or, or has done but that photo of him in the back of the police car it just I don't know. It's 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 a clout chasing moment, and it's quite odd to actually consider that um, he did this for clout, which is a very big thing these days in in YouTube world and things like that, Snapchat. So I think um, I think what we're seeing is just a bit of bravado, which he has now had to face in in the real light of day, and I think he realizes the repercussions that he may spend a lot of time in jail. They did say it's a second degree case, so um, it's not. It's likely not to be a mandatory life sentence, but um, he's, I don't think he's going to have a lot of freedom if this actually goes the way it has. Purely they've already said of the evidence that they do have, but again, this is an open case. There could be others involved. We just don't know yet. It's absolutely crazy. I can't imagine being in the back of a police car and going, this is a good idea. I'm going to make light of the situation. Not only make light of the fact she died, but I'm the prime suspect. And has anyone seen her? Uh, just yeah. absolute crazy stuff. But uh, another one we will have to keep following, Amanda. Look, don't forget, if you want to watch this show, we are now doing the video podcast, as we've mentioned. Go to mwm.uscreen.io have to remember that email address that website address amanda it's <laughs> mwm.uscreen.io and of course <laughs> there's always patreon out there for you just go to patreon.com slash mwm confessions where you can get the video feed as part of one of the tiers we've got going there we've got tiers to suit every budget all right coming up in a moment our psychological process on Mick Philpot. Here's a cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Monsters Who Murder: Serial Killer Confessions. Police found 27 corpses. Australia's worst serial killer. You know, I didn't want to get in the car. I actually. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. This week we examine a case that has been requested quite a few times on the MWM public Facebook group. It's a case known as the Allenton House Fire. In the early morning hours of May 11, 2012, multiple triple nine calls were made to Derby Emergency Services. The 18 Victory Road Osmartin Council flat of Mick Philpot and his family was on fire. In the house at the time were Mick and Mayreed Philpot and children Duane, 13, Jade, 10, John, 9, Jack, 7, Jesse, 6, and Jaden, 5. Mick and Mayreed were able to flee the burning building, and Mick claimed he tried to get back inside to get to his children, who were all sleeping on the second floor. But the flames pushed him back. All of the children, except 15 year old Duane, perished in the fire. Duane was rushed to hospital but died from his burns two days later. The outpouring of emotion for Mick and Mayreed went international and it intensified when police claimed the horrific house fire was declared an arson attack. And two suspects, a 28 year old woman and a 38 year old man, had been arrested. Five days later, Mick, with Mayreed at his side, spoke at a police press conference about their loss. First of all, I want to thank my three oldest children because they helped us to cope with what's going off. And then there's a young lad called Daniel Stevenson who tried to get in the house, same as myself, and Joe across the road, and the Butler brothers. And of course, there's the four firemen, the police, the ambulances, the doctors, the nurses, literally everybody who's, who tried, tried to help save our children in the cold. 
<laughs> Excuse me a minute. We've decided that through our son Dwayne, and unfortunately the last one's passed away, that we're going to donate his, his organs to save another child, which is what we want, because if you can save another child, that's, that makes us happy. It takes a bit of the pain away. And we can't express our gratitude to everybody that's been concerned with the case, with what's been going on. Um, I've actually been down to my our, our home, and what we saw, we just, we just cannot believe it. We grew up in a community that's been, had a lot of problems with violence and, and God knows what else, and to see this community to, to come together like the Abyss, just, it's just too overwhelming. We've had people from America, France, even the travelling, I mean the travelling community, it's just, we've been to see them, it's just overwhelming, isn't it? But I say I can't express enough the police, the fire brigade and the ambulance services because what we feel, them poor gentlemen from the fire brigade who saw what, what we've seen, you know, my heart goes out to them because it's not just us that's suffering, it's them as well, it's everybody. It's but there's one thing I would request is please, please leave my family alone. If you've got any questions or anything at all, please don't come through me or my family. Please go to the police because what's happening at the moment, you are disrupting what these officers are trying to do. So please, I beg you, leave us alone and let us try and grieve in peace and quiet. That's all I ask. Thank you. Oh, Amanda. Um... I've said this many times, the age-old adage, age adage that newsrooms around the world always say, the more they cry, the more guilty they are. Oh, my goodness, this one. It just it, it boils my blood. I am so ready to just fire away in this one. There's about... 500 things I can see and I'm um, in our Patreon Facebook group I actually went through some of them there and um, they're learning quite well there so um, yeah but there's a lot of crying there but not a lot of tears yeah and and look now there is more in that press conference than meets the eye and I know you are ready to get stuck in yeah <laughs> but first let me bring our listeners up to speed the two initial suspects were interviewed and dismissed soon after then a fortnight later or two weeks later for our US listeners Mick and May Reed uh, and later a third suspect Paul Mosley they were arrested and charged with the murders of the six children let's start by going through that press conference and we actually have it from several different angles so nothing will be missed of course with the serial killer whisperer. I have to say, Amanda, this is why I'm glad we're doing this video episodes as well. We're going to start before the press conference begins with footage of the couple entering the room. Amanda, while we watch it, explain to me while what we're seeing. So we're seeing them actually come through. The, 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 the press are actually sort of flashing their lights and, and taking all the photos of them. They're actually waiting to be seated. Um, and Mick actually goes first, and then he pushes May Reed in front of him, and so she has to go and sit down first. And um, it's almost like he's using her as a shield. He, he just doesn't want to do it. And then they sit down, and it's our first gotcha moment right there at the 22-second mark. I love it. 
Okay, so for those on the video, we'll show that again while Amanda explains what she means by the gotcha moment. Can we roll that footage in, please? So here they come. They're coming in. Yep. So here we go. They're about to sit down, and you watch this synchronised crying. One, two back together so she didn't know what to do and so a mixer looks to her puts his head down into his very dry tissue and she does the exact same thing if if you're upset you wouldn't be caring what you look like what the other person's doing and it's just amazing it's so synchronized it's so beautifully done and she has no idea what to do and so she just sort of follows him for what he does and then he sort of pulls her closer and it's just it's an odd scenario to see and even by that moment most of the people in that room knew something else was going on. Ah, interesting. Now, before we continue with the press conference, I think it's important to go into a little background of Mick Philpott and his various relationships. Now, we have this directly from Justice Thurwell, the judge who sentenced Philpott. We have edited this for brevity, but there's still a lot. Um, it's important to know the tangled mess that eventually led to the motive. Here's what the judge said. Until February 2012, you lived in one household with your wife and her six children, and with another woman, Lisa Willis, and her five children children, making 11 children in all. You were the father of nine of the children. You were, by that time, 55 years old. May Reed Philpott was 31. Lisa Willis was 28. Those arrangements had been in place for around 10 years or so. During that period, you married May Reed Philpott. Lisa Willis was a bridesmaid at your wedding. You were obsessed with Lisa Willis and you asked May Reed Philpott for a divorce so that you could marry Lisa. Apparently, you expected May Reed to remain in the house with the children just as before, but she refused. In February, Lisa Willis left you, taking her children with her. You tried sweet-talking her, cajoling and bullying her. She would not come back and you began to put together your plan. It is now necessary to look at the history of your relationships with other women. The first of which I am concerned was a relationship with a girl in her teens. You were in your 20s. The relationship was characterised by violence. There were repeated beatings. On one occasion, you broke your arm. On another, you dislocated her knee with a sledgehammer. Eventually, she tried to bring your relationship to an end. You did not accept her decision. You broke into her house and stabbed her repeatedly in a ferocious attack. When her mother intervened, you turned on her. You were convicted of attempted murder and wounding with intent. When you came out of prison, you married your first wife. Three children were born. You subjected your wife to physical violence throughout your relationship. She never reported anything to the police. She was too afraid to do so. She knew of your past. Then there was the time when you took up with a very young Heather Kehoe. She was 16 when she ran away with you. You were in your 40s. Heather Kehoe had two children. You controlled her through physical and sexual violence, threats and emotional abuse. Eventually she ran away from you. You prevented her from taking the children. You then met May Reed, a young single mother of one little boy. She told the court that she saw you as her guardian angel and moved in with you. You then met Lisa Willis, as I have described. May Reed agreed to have her in the house. She told the court she was hurt. Of course she was. You did not care. You controlled and manipulated these women as you had controlled and manipulated their predecessors. They ran the household and looked after all the children. They went out to work. Their wages and their benefits went into your account. You controlled how money was spent. You were kingpin. No one else mattered. 
What was plain from the earlier stage of the evidence was the importance to you of your children. In addition to the 11 who formed the household in early 2012, you have another seven. I am quite satisfied that for you, the principal purpose of many children is to reflect you. You craved attention. You enjoyed the limelight. You courted publicly. You were and remain the centre of your world. I turn back to the events of the spring of 2012. You wanted to achieve the return of Lisa Willis. The way of achieving that, you decided, was to engineer the return of the children to you. She would then surely follow. Within a very short time, you had formulated the plan which would lead to the death of those six children. You then began to plant the idea that Lisa Willis and her family were threatening to set fire to your home. You mentioned it to your acquaintances and friends. A court hearing was set for the 11th of May in respect to the arrangements for the children you had with Lisa. You told people that you had a plan, something up your sleeve. As we now know, that plan was the house fire. The first suspects arrested and released were in connection to the accusations Phil Pop made about Lisa and her family. Now, Amanda, that all seems like a tangled mess, but Phil Pop thrived on it, didn't he? And even appeared on television gloating about his welfare life with many of his children and before the house fire. What makes a guy like that tick? We're going to get into this a bit further, but um, what we're seeing is someone who is absolutely enthralled with their own talents, and his talents are basically to make children. Um, and so to put it in simplest terms, we're talking about a man who is charismatic, who takes in young women, who uh, raises his own children. We're talking about a cult leader. That's what he is. Mm. It's, it's very easy to sort of juxtapose him with uh, people like Marcus Wesson, who did a very similar thing um, in in the United States. So um, you know, to it's he can't sort of conjole a lot of people around him, but he could get these younger girls who were then baby baby farm basically baby farms for him, and so he would just sort of laze around and, and be the king of his own kingdom, and you know they would do what they were told, whether it be have more babies, whether it be go out and work, but whether it be um, defraud welfare um, places and things like that. It's all about how he got his um, his justifications to, to his, his right of being um, because these women doted on him and if they went to leave him, as we saw, he actually attempted to murder one of them mm. because she goes, I don't want to stay in a violent relationship and it's a one-way relationship. He, he gets all of the glory and the women do all of the hard work. You know, it's no different to um, like Charles Manson, same thing, got out of prison, went and, and hooked up with a a lot of young girls got more people around him, and and then went on on to kill um, in in the two um, nights in um, LA. But it's it's exactly the same thing. It's a, it looks like a smaller scale because we're not looking at it as a religion per se, but it is a cult, and mm. he is the leader. It's uh, it's when it dawned on me that that's what I, I was watching. Uh, his his reactions and actions made total sense to me. Okay. It's really interesting how these people get these sex cults going. I reckon if I was to start a cult, we'd be making videos. <laughs> Hang on, we already do that. So maybe that is my cult. <laughs> All right. Let's return to the second video as the officer in charge welcomes the press and introduces the Philpots. Amanda, you have a tip, though, for this next section. 
Yes, so don't watch the people that are talking. Watch Philpott and May Reed because, you know, most people have have a sense of watching the person who's who's talking. Mm. And it's like when I go to a wedding, everyone turns to look at, at the bride. I turn to the groom because it's amazing to see that reaction as well. And that's what we need to do here. Look at the two killers and how they respond when someone else is, is talking because they forget that they're still in the limelight. So keep an eye out. Mm. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for attending this press conference, which is recorded on behalf of Mick Philpott and his wife, Marie, together with the Garbage Chicken Scattery. Uh, my name is Steve Fossil. I'm the Assistant Chief Counsel for the Okay, what am I watching there? Because they're not moving. Yes, because they're sitting and listening intently. They're not crying. They're not upset. They're not the focus. They can't. They can't have this this charade going on and at the same time listen to what the other person is saying. If you're basically the star of, of the show, you don't care what the other people are saying. But they're sitting there. Oh, okay. You know, you're, you're telling the press to be polite and kind to us and everything. Okay. Yep. No worries. Because they forget that they're still they're still in focus. The camera is still on them. You know, it's exactly what we saw when we did Kaisha. Abrams a couple of weeks ago mm. um, when Kirsty Abrams was being interviewed along with her, her partner David Smith and um, while he was talking she kept stopped crying so she could listen to him and this is what we're seeing here again um, you know as soon as he sort of hands over to Mick to start talking Mick goes back into the the acting again this is why you can't watch what you're supposed to be watching you've got to watch what you need to watch and yeah it is interesting because when he's speaking, and I'm talking about Mick, the tissue is up to the eyes, you know, and right there, nothing's happening. It's it's a really interesting thing you've picked out there. And obviously, for those people listening to the audio podcast, we're trying to explain in great detail what we're seeing so that you still understand what's going on. Um, this is one of those episodes where the video makes a difference, and this is why we're doing the video podcast. Now, look, Amanda, we turn our attention back to the original ITN angle to now watch for those key elements that provide us the insight into the body language and what it does to convince us of their guilt. Let's have a look. First of all, I want to thank my three oldest children because they helped us to cope with what's going off. And then there's a young lad called Daniel Stevenson who tried to get in the house the same as myself, and Joe across the road, and the Butler brothers. And of course, there's the poor firemen the police and the ambulances, the doctors, the nurses, literally everybody who's, who tried to, try to help save our children in the couldn't. Okay, that's not what I thought I'd hear. There's no I statements, no selfish remarks. He personally thanked everyone who helped. He even named neighbours. Yeah, and, you know, it sounds nice and innocent. It sounds like, you know, this is a guy who's just, you know, thanking everyone. But isn't your focus on your children? Like, 
why is he naming neighbours when he doesn't name his children? They're there because of what ha- has happened to the children, you know, but he seems so um, clear and there's clarity to his words that he knows, oh, you're ambulances and doctors and nurses and fireys and all of this, all these other people, but not the central people that are uh, what this is about, you know. You wouldn't remember who was there. If, if, if this was such a horrific moment, you, you'd be vague to know that, oh, yeah, a couple of the neighbours, I remember someone's face and I remember someone sort of handing me a cigarette or something like that. You, you, you would have these these moments that you can pick in that moment of tragedy. But you're not going to go and say, oh, Dave Smith here and, and, and Joe down there and, and these fire brigades and that ambulance. And thank you, everyone, you know, but we need to focus on, on justice. And there's none of that. There's none of that detail that you would expect him to start off with. You know, we are here because of the tragic deaths of my children. No, I want to thank all these people and how amazing everyone is. Mm. Well, look, then he does something that you, of course, are all over. <laughs> Excuse me a minute. <laughs> All right, Amanda, (laughs) what are we looking at? I'm so glad that we have tissues. It makes this job a lot easier. If people had hankies, it would be so much harder to do. But a tissue disintegrates. A tissue is made to disintegrate. <laughs> and here we are with these people who have cried into these tissues multiple times in the in, in these cu- last couple of moments. And those tissues are perfectly dry. They aren't scrunched up. They're not crumpled. They are beautifully <laughs> done. And then he does. He goes to do the big cry and then goes, oh, excuse me, I have to cry. And it's all so dramatic and 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 overwrought and just absolutely done for the cameras and you know oh you know I'm 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 a devastated dad but I'm going to ask you to forgive me that I'm actually going to cry now like he's asking for permission to be um, an overactor and it's just amazing and he knows that as soon as he did that snap 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 the cameras start again so he knows that he's getting those good shots of him as the grieving father when he's standing there talking there's you know, a couple of photos going off, but when he does the buried hands in the dry tissue, he knows that that's going to be on the front of the Daily Telegraph the next day. Yeah, it's funny. I actually picked up on that, and that's thanks to you, because I wouldn't have thought twice about it, but it's the dry tears that is always the giveaway, and I'm sure the police would have been onto that. That's why they've done the secret recordings we're going to hear in a moment. But look, he then goes off on a tangent, and this is quite perplexing. We've decided that through our son Dwayne, and unfortunately the last one's passed away, that we're going to donate his, his organs to save another child, which is what we want, because if you can save another child, that's, that makes us happy. It takes a bit of the pain away. Okay, what the actual... I won't say it. Yeah. <laughs> I did last week and someone laughed and said that I swore and they'd never heard me swear before. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you should hear yeah, it off no, mic. No, no, Jesus. Yeah. Anyway, that's oh, we're going on our own yep. tangent. 
Sorry. Um, it is a crazy moment that they're deciding that basically their son's body isn't cold yet and they're making themselves look like heroes because we're going to donate his organs, not that he is going to mm. die to let others live or anything like that. And when I heard this statement, I played that through multiple times because I didn't get it. I didn't understand what they were getting at and how it fit. It's just, it's something I've, I've, I've known of many organ retrievals. I've worked in areas where it's happened and I get how it happens. I've seen families come in with, you know, a child who is about to die in surgery so then others can live and it is harrowing and everything. And then I realised I was going to go and find other videos where, where people had donated the organs of victims like this. And you know what? Parents don't get up and say this. Parents don't go, oh, you know, we're heroes because we're going to do this. Mm. What you often find is maybe a spokesperson for the family might say something or um, afterwards there might be like a video of um, there's often a guard of honour for these uh, patients going into theatres knowing that what's coming out isn't going to be the same person and they're given, um, you know, standing ovations, moments of silence and all of this. And it is a very dramatic and harrowing moment for them to actually use this in this press conference which has nothing to do with it it's something that yes it is good that there is organ donation usually it will be a police officer will say that the family has decided to donate organs but they're doing this as as kudos this is mick again blowing his own trumpet saying you know I wish, basically, I'm surprised he he didn't say, I wish I could have done this with all all the kids, you know, and no doubt he probably asked, was there like a, a, a payment? He would have done that for sure. But, you know, it's about his hero status and this is what we have to see that um, it's also a bit of misdirection. So mm. um, while he's he, he's being yep. a hero, we're also seeing him say that, you know, that, that that's their final sacrifice that they're going to do for their child. He's, he's going to let others live, you know, but it's it's just gross and horrifying at at the same time you know and it's the words you know we are going to donate his organs it will take away our pain you know it's just oh it's just gross and it's just horrible i just i really that was really hard to sort of go through and analyze because it's not how these moments um are played out when there's the, these tragic times so for him to sort of make that a focus is just just it's it's gross yeah and it was interesting too when the police officer said oh have you had enough do you want to go he was like no no i'm fine you know like don't take away my limelight mate and in fact, um, they had asked the night before to do this press conference. This wasn't the police, you know, putting ah. it out there that they need help for this case. They just wanted to go and face the cameras. And they're like, are you sure? And, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready to do this. I need to do this. There was no need for it. Yeah, well, it's not a missing persons thing, is it? It wasn't like they're trying no. to find a kid that's lost or been kidnapped. Exactly. The, you know, they knew the fate here. That's very interesting. All right, let's have a look at what else we have. And we can't express our gratitude to everybody that's been concerned with the case of what's been going on. Okay. You've had me clip up nine seconds of audio. Why? What did you spot? What have I missed? Well, we did two seconds before. Um, <laughs> he called it the case. He called it the case. 
It's ah. not about talking about the loss of his children, the horrifying fire, the tragedy. He called it the case. And I missed that the first time. It was playing it back a second time through that I realised that he said that. And there is your big alarm bell. If you didn't believe their guilt before, that was the moment. He just depersonalised the whole, whole thing and is now the case. All right. I want to have a listen to that again. Let's play that again. And we can't express our gratitude to everybody that's been concerned with the case of what's been going on. <laughs> Amanda, this is why you are the expert. This is why you are the serial killer whisperer. You pick up on things that completely ride over me. Well done. Um, it is interesting. And as the press conference continues, Mick, just a little over a minute in, already has nothing much else to say. This speaks volumes, doesn't it, Amanda? It does. So it's amazing that he, you know, as you said, 60 seconds in and he's now fumbling for things to say because he needs to stay out there. Well, let's have a listen at how he tries to stretch. Um, I've actually been down to my our, our home and what we saw, we just, we just cannot believe it. We grew up in a community that's been had a lot of problems with violence and, and God knows what else. And to see this community to, to come together like the Abbey, just, it's just too overwhelming. We've had people from America, France, even the travelling, I mean the travelling community, it's just, we've been to see them, it's just overwhelming, isn't it? But I say I can't express enough the, the, the police, the fire brigade and the ambulance services because what we feel, then poor gentlemen from the fire brigade who saw what, what we've seen, you know, my heart goes out to them because it's not just us, it's suffering, it's them as well, it's everybody. It's... It reminds me of Muriel's wedding, uh, the dad politician who says, I've got a telegram for the, from the Prime Minister, you know, who else would get that? We got... We got no. We got messages from France and Germany. We're important. Um, it's it's truly horrifying, isn't it? It is, and you know, it's. I shouldn't get so much enjoyment out of this because it is so horrific. But I just love seeing an idiot just sort of dig themselves in, into a hole like this. But I want to turn the tables. You've just played the whole tape, or pretty much most of it. Yeah. What? has happened in this that that should have happened but didn't so can you pick come on get into my brain what has this whole press conference missed well may reed hasn't spoken i don't know if that's anything to do with it um oh geez i don't want to take too much time trying to work this no. out <laughs> let me put my serial killer whisperer hat on i'm yep. talking to serial killers i'm writing to them uh oh don't send me that picture um, <laughs> uh i don't know they didn't mention their children not once they mentioned the one that was being an organ donation because that was good kudos mm. for mick but there is nothing about our like six children are dead they don't mention they mention the neighbor down the road yeah. but they don't mention what's happened to these children they don't name them they don't talk about them there is nothing about loss it's all about gratitude and how famous they now are and that they're giving up someone else's organs um and yeah 
they mentioned nothing at all about the deaths of their children. He even said, I went and saw the house. Yes. But... I hate this because you actually mentioned the fact about the children earlier on, and I didn't piece that together here. I feel like a failure. I feel no, incompetent. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That no, it is why plan. we have you, Amanda. <laughs> I, I ask the questions, you deliver the expertise. Um, that is a good insight. And that shows it's all about him. And it's about him. When I hear that, the, thing, the conclusion I come to, it's about him being seen to thank people. It's about him. It's not about the kids. It's about him uh, connecting with the community, him being the centre of attention. You're right. He, there's nothing like we lost six beautiful angels or anything like that. There's yep. no remorse. There's fake tears about what they're going through, but no actual um, real emotion and even mentions. This That's is right. extraordinary the more I think about it. <laughs> it is because you sort of have to go through and it's about thinking what would you normally see in a press conference like this and as I said mm. this didn't need to even happen so for him to have to do it um, and then make it about him and how he has to thank everyone else he's he, he's trying to also besides big note himself he's also trying to um, make himself look like um, that he's prostrate in front of these people he's there yeah. to thank them and, and lay at their feet for doing such a wonderful job which basically failed because the children did die. So um, he is thanking them to make sure, basically because they didn't save his, his children because that wasn't the plan. Well, look, as we saw earlier in this episode, the rest of the press conference was about asking the press to leave them alone, which obviously didn't happen. As we've mentioned before, the press loved these types of things, getting the close-up for when the truth comes out. And like everyone else, the police were suspicious from the beginning, and they actually recorded Mick and May Reed talking about the case in the police van on the way to their lodgings the couple moved into. Now, we've got a series of recordings over a few days and weeks. This one is in the van when they're talking about the terms the police are using. That's the same action. No, I'm just thinking to know what that actually means. Saints are the saints awesome and then next to the saints actually. Now, this is important for him, isn't it, Amanda, to know how the police are thinking. Because if it's arson, they're obviously after the arsonists. If it's an accident, he would feel a sense of safety, wouldn't he? Yeah, well, if it was an accident, you know, things do happen. You know, they were in a council flat. There could have been bad wiring. You know, we know that he had a caravan hooked up to the house, which is where he slept and things like that. But it's amazing that he's making sure that she has the right terms in her brain and everything and how the police are, are, are talking about it. And then we just saw him in the press conference the next day call it the case, you know. So mm. he is just like he's he's one that, that makes it crumble. But, I mean, this is exactly the same that what happened with Fred and Rose West, you know, um, 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, um, that they were recorded talking about the same thing, make sure they had their stories straight. So, I mean, I, 
They're really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he also seems, as we'll go through this, to be worried about being recorded. But, look, in this clip, he talks to May Reid about Lisa. Now, as we've talked about, Lisa was Mick's girlfriend and the court heard he would spend one night with May Reid and then the next night with Lisa until she left a month before the murder. Here, Mick reflects on his relationship with Lisa. Yeah, so to me, Lisa was the bad one. That's it. She sent me one of the two. And that's nice. The way she said what she said was because she could go to her house. I never thought she'd turn like that, you know. Mm. I still don't think she did her. Mm. Mm. Not believe it. So, Amanda, this was all planned out as a ploy to get Lisa back, and he is saying to his wife, I don't know why I did. Yeah, it's it's just revolting. But in all likelihood, what we're seeing is that it's just a plot that Mayred had to sort of keep to the story because the plan was um, to make it look like that there was a tragic accident and so Lisa would come back with open arms and just be a wonderful part of the family again, you know, and at the same time he was going to use her as the scapegoat. Um, so if she come back and wasn't um, reciprocating his, his love, well, then he was just going to say, you know, this is the one who's done it. But if mm. she came back and went, oh, you know, you poor people, you know, the family has to come back together, then he would have just accepted that. So this is what all of this was about. This whole fire was about getting the family back together. He needed to have as many women as he could and as many children as he could in the same house where he thinks that they deserve to be. And so he's he's kind of sort of thinking he's regretting it, but at the same time he has to make sure that Mayred's not going to actually um, give him up either. And he can see that she's, she's not nowhere near as strong as he is to sort of keep up this resolve. Sure. Um, he was never intending to kill the kids, right? He wanted to be a hero or did he not care if the kids died? Uh, it's it's it depends on which source that you read, but um, the the way that they actually left the house, they could have actually saved the children because the the fire was started just at the bottom of the front steps. Now they could have uh, well when they went from the back of the house to the front of the house where, where the fire was. Apparently after like you know a, a, a cocktail had been thrown in the front door, mm -hmm. um, they actually went past several fire extinguishers that are by law in in, in homes in England. So uh, they didn't pick up the fire extinguishers they didn't use the fire extinguishers it could have been stopped it could have been a mini sort of fire that they could have saved the children from but you know fires get out of control very mm. quickly so he would have known the higher chances especially when uh, the fire was set at the only place of egress that these children had to get out so i mean it's it to me it's murder one um but they they couldn't prove it definitively that it that that wasn't the final solution that they had for this. Mm. Okay, now this next section is a little confusing to me because they talk about not wanting to believe that Lisa set fire to the house. Amanda, I'm going to ask you about this after we hear the clip and whether this is them thinking that they're being recorded and trying to be careful. I'm confused. Let's have a listen. Yeah. Yeah. 
So is this them thinking they're being recorded and really trying to shift attention over to Lisa? I think so. I think what we have is is two different sort of um, plans that are, are occurring. So um, they are probably in one location because, as we, we know, these weren't all filmed and, and recorded in one night. So they're yep. different points. So this could be after her arrest. So they will assume that they've... Um, probably being taped wherever they are and so they sort of have to say you know i can't believe that she would have done this um you know um you know i i, I thought she she loved us she was part of our family and at at the same time is this just the ploy um so then they can point the finger somewhere else it's just it's just one of those pieces that they said just sort of fits into the story a bit because there's blaming of Lisa and at the same time they talk about how much they love Lisa. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a confusing section, but this is one of the sections that we have that they wanted the that the public to hear. So I think it's just about how he leads Mayrid on with all of these issues that she just sort of says yes to everything he says. All right, well, Mick then asked May Reid about what she said in her earlier police interview. What did you say? Tell me what you said to me. What did you say about how many times went to the ladders? I can't ask her how many times went to the ladders. What did you say about me trying to get in? You tried everything you could to get in that except when I wanted to run through the flames up the stairs. What did you cry when you were saying it? How bad? Not really, really bad, but I did cry. I'm so cool. How bad did you cry? He's probably, it sounds like he might be upset that Itchy didn't go as over the top as him. Yeah, well, he said that he was hysterical. So, um, you know, he's now... Uh, decrying her for for how she reacted in a police interview this woman is meek and mild she is terrified of this man we can see that everything that she does um especially in that press conference she looks to him before she even makes a move and so she knows that she has to get all of this in the right way and did it the amount of times that he told her to say it because she doesn't want to, to feel his wrath so mm. it's quite amazing that you know how many times they just say i went up and down and all of this sort of crazy stuff you know she would have if she was in in the place that she should have been which was absolute fear and terror she probably would have said yeah i have no idea you know and if she had gone in and said he went up 12 times like that that would be a massive red flag so for her to actually say oh i lost count because he tried so many times that is a perfectly reasonable response but he wants to know you know everything and did you cry whilst you're saying it it's just um he knows that she could put him in jail for a very very long time mm. if she broke so he has to make sure that she remains under his control back to the cult leader status that we have well, once they get home, they continue talking about the case and they are oblivious they're still being secretly recorded. Nicole, what, what reason did you tell the police about why she left? She said she'd been fun, but she blamed me for it. wasn't your fault. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. But she didn't want to do it. So I'm proud of you. He really coached her, didn't he? It's interesting. He knows that she didn't want to do it, 
but she and she lied to him saying yes I want to do it and he's now saying I know you didn't want to do it and I'm proud of you for doing it yeah I mean this is how they gaslight this is how they manipulate you know if it goes wrong he's going to make it her fault so realizing that they think that they've they've got through this and that they're home and host he's now proud of her because she's stuck by it because we can see that she's a weak person we can see that she is oblivious to the control that she's under she she's not happy about it I mean the guy said I I want to divorce you and marry the bridesmaid I mean and she's like yeah no but okay if that's what has to happen which he can move in all this sort of stuff so you know but it's always been about his behavior not hers the police weren't even interested in her because that they knew that they could break her quite easily but they mm. needed to get mick because they knew that mick was responsible for this because he he'd been setting out all of these spot fires he'd literally been telling people lisa says that she, she's going to set fire to the house you know lisa's going to come and do something and kill my children he, he was setting that out so that's why they were arrested so quickly after the fire it's because of his own manipulation of everyone that is around him he he controls the lot yeah it's interesting he was given a phone by police and in this next bit we can see that he doesn't trust them and this phone they've given them Look, we know it's a bit tricky to hear for those listening through the audio podcast, but in there he said, I hope this room isn't camered up. Ah, uh, yes, it is, buddy. And <laughs> you don't know when to shut up, does he, Amanda? No, he doesn't, and he shouldn't trust the police. And you all know that I go on about that, and we had a big chat on on the MWM group about this the other day. But um, they're out to get evidence. He knows that the heat is on. He knows the police are around. The police are giving them phones. Hey, use this phone. It's, it's like BTK. Yeah, send the file in. We can't trace it. <laughs> and, and I just can't get over the fact that um, they're using a, a safe house that the police put them in, using the phones the police gave them, and they think that they can talk clearly and easily about this because they really don't think the, cam the house is camered up or, mm. or, or recorded or whatever they want to say. It's just, you know, most of the evidence they get is from him. Yeah. So, you know. I know, but this, this is when he says what they're waiting to hear. It's my fault that the family's gone. It's my fault that I still have five children. It's my fault that I still have five children. It's my fault that I still have five children. I should have seen it all coming, though. It's his fault. Mm -hmm. Bruce said that they're trusting him what he's doing, and he's got some balls, big balls, because there's no evidence. They've got nothing. There's no, no pictures on me, no trousers, no glass. And finally, said he put, put them under throat. Um, I actually fucking didn't, I did. Both of them. And that front room window was open. Yeah, I couldn't understand that. No, I can't. I said I was told by Jenny that the police had opened it. Yeah. And we've got nothing to worry. We still have trust in my mum, we said. Oh, he literally said it's his fault. Now, he could probably write that off because, as though he's 
claiming that he, you know, he feels responsible. Yeah, exactly. And that's what he later said at trial. You know, he's saying he, he felt mm -hmm. um, that all of this happened because he got involved with Lisa and it was about Lisa leaving and all of this sort of stuff and that he believes that it's his fault for meeting this woman and falling in love. And that's what he means by his fault, not the fact that he mm -hmm. lit the fire and pushed it through the mail slot in the front door of his of his um, council flat. So, I mean, you know, he, he has an excuse for everything, but really he, he was on the back foot from from the start of all of this and um though we only have the, these tiny tidbits to look at we actually can see that um he was the loose cannon in all of this and uh this outcome was very much something that he he knew was coming it's also interesting because there were obviously two different recordings spliced together there and when he's talking about the judge he really felt like he was off the hook, you know, because firemen were getting their stories mixed up and misremembering details, you mm -hmm. know, like the window, and that he had no petrol on him. So he really felt at one point during that recording, he was golden, he was clean. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He he believed that he had everyone fooled and, and he believed that, you know, that it was him that, that did the hero smashing through the windows and it was him that tried to get in, into the house. Um, there's actually a doco on this where the two neighbour young guys um, were, were there and they are devastated. And then you see Mick Philpott being... Uh, interviewed for the same thing and you wouldn't think he was the, the father of these children you would have thought they, they these two young guys were because they are distraught and destroyed mm. by all of this and he and he mick is saying oh you know i didn't have glass on me so it can't be me yet he he says earlier oh yeah but um i was the one that smashed the window so he's he's just all over the place so much that there's nothing in his story that anyone actually believed yeah well, in 2013, Mick and May Reed Philpot, along with accomplice Paul Mosley, it was his role to destroy all of the petrol evidence once the fire was lit. They were all found guilty of the manslaughters of the six children. Mick received a life sentence and is eligible for parole after 15 years. May Reed and Mosley each received a 17-year sentence. Yet just before Christmas in 2020, May Reed was released from prison, serving only half of her sentence. Amanda, you've done it again. There is always something to learn with the cases we look at, and I've certainly learned something today. I missed a vital, vital clue. <laughs> a big clue, but yeah, mm. this is why I have to start testing you, because you know there might be a day that I don't have a voice or something, God forbid, and um, you might have to do all of this, and I might have to give you sign language, and you might have to answer it or something. I don't know. Just Could I, you I, imagine? I I'd be there going, all right, Robert, Robo, Robert? I can't even <laughs> say my own word, name. <laughs> falling apart at the end of the show. OK, Robert, okay, what do you think you. of this case? Well, thank you for asking, Robert. Uh, <laughs> we can have a split oh. screen in the video screen where I'm in both boxes. Oh, goodness, that's what we need is two Roberts. I'm sorry, people. I'm so sorry for suggesting that. Hey, look, to see two Roberts and plenty more, we won't give you two Roberts, so I promise you we won't put you through that. Just go to mwm.uscreen.io. And always, the Patreon page is full of bonus material and bonuses for every budget. Amanda, thank you for another great case. Thank you, Robert. This has been a good one. It was a hard one to get through. Mm. I know for both of us, there was a lot of technical difficulties this time. It was interesting. There was a lot of subtitling, but uh, I really, it was really fascinating watching it back. Amanda, thank you. We'll see you next week. See ya.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.